from Bath, Melbourne, Seoul, and Detroit Rock City. You wanted the best, you got the best. The hardest working music movie podcast in the land. See Thanks very much for joining us. My name is Morris. Over in Seoul, Korea, we have Mr. Tim Merrill. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Uh, got up extra early today to uh, put my ace face on, and uh, I just want to say we're going to rock and roll all night and podcast every day. And in Bath, we have Mr. Bernie Stickwell. Uh, good evening. Just uh, touching up my uh, cat whisker makeup here. So I've, I've stolen your place, actually, Morris. You, you should be with the cat whiskers. You're the drummer, aren't you? Well, so. well hang on. You're, you're an ex-drummer, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we'll a stick each. We'll share. Okay. Hello, anyway. <laughs> Hello. And we have from Detroit... We have one of Rock the co-hosts, Detroit Rock City. Yes, so we should be playing this under, that music underneath you uh, as your theme, your entrance theme. We have Mr. Mike White, co-host of The Projection Booth. Afternoon to you, Mike. Good afternoon, fellas. Coming to you live from Detroit Rock City, where I was just uh, thinking about doing the Vinnie Vincent look on my face. <laughs> Just to be a little bit different. Vintage. Vintage. Hey, so actually, come to think of it, Bernie, you could stick with the Peter Chris and I could wear the uh, Eric Carr makeup thing. There's Ooh. enough to share for everyone. It's all good. So as you might have gathered, we're here to discuss the 1978 TV movie Kiss meets the Phantom at the Park, and we'll discuss what we liked or didn't like about it in uh, due course. But uh, given that we have a very special guest in Mike White, co-host of the Projection Booth, if there's maybe one or two listeners out there who haven't listened to the Projection Booth, Mike, please give us a bit of a rundown on uh, the format of the Projection Booth podcast. Well, it's a weekly show. We drop every Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, and uh, each week we look at a different film, try to kind of put it in context, talk to people that might have been involved with it or maybe kind of tangentially involved with the film or with something that we're talking about, and, uh, yeah, just try to bring the best uh, conversation about film that we possibly can. Right, because uh, I know that, you know, there's many film discussion podcasts out there, you know, ours included, that just really have our own sort of personal discussion, but it seems like you guys really go through all the hoops to try and get all the uh, special people that you do, you know, your directors and writers and film authors and, and the like. And I've seen some of your posts on Facebook. You seem to be going through eternal frustration, getting the right people to uh, answer your calls and to... Uh, so <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes things just come together. We're doing an episode on Kit Carter in a couple weeks here, and Man, when I decided to do that, it was, you know, Mike Hodges was on the line. You know, Michael Caine, unfortunately, no, but 
you know, I ended up talking to the guy who directed Hitman from 1972, the remake, who directed the 2000 remake. It just came together like that. And other times it's like you get some Z-level actor or actress out there and they're just like playing hard to get. It's like, oh, for God's sake, just pick up the phone. <laughs> so did you ever uh, find that you had you had someone who came on the show that you had high expectations that they'd offer some real insight into the film and then within two minutes you thought, no, nah, this is just not going to (laughs) work i think my favorite interview that we've ever done perhaps along those lines was when we talked to alan Barron for his film blast of silence Mm -hmm. where he had written a memoir and he got really upset because i uh mistook one branch of the u.s service for another and he pretty much just unloaded on me and then it was just the whole time i was like well i wrote about that why should i talk about it and it just (laughs) one of the most uncomfortable interviews i've ever had Oh, my goodness. And Whoa. did you end up playing it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the one thing that I really love about what you do, Mike, is that, you know, in, you know, if you can put it in a cooking analogy, a lot of podcasts just kind of, they skim the surface or trim the fat. But, you know, you guys, man, break the bones and suck out all the marrow. I mean, you take it as far as you can go. And, I mean, that's you know, where you've kind of set the gold standard as far as I'm concerned, you know, when it comes to that. Whereas I think, you know, I listen to other podcasts and say, well, why would I listen to these guys review the movie? Because, you know, like the projection booths already rung every inch inch of life out of this thing. Like, that's it, man. Like, you're not going to get any more than that, you know? You're going to make me blush over here. (laughs) Mission accomplished. You need to be careful there, Tim, as well, because I think, Mike, uh, you've already covered Kiss versus the Phantom of the Park, haven't you? Yeah. We did back on our 100th episode so it's been a little while we're up to 250 now so maybe we can get something new out of it then yeah that's right (laughs) I'll, I'll confess, I don't know about uh, you, Tim or, or Bernie, I didn't listen to the episode because I really wanted to go in fresh, but first thing after we've recorded, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go listen. It's downloaded, it's ready to listen to. So I thought, don't want to take any chances. At, oh, I think I've just pinched that for our conversation here. But um, So, so yeah, so you, at 250 episodes plus, so yeah, you have been going for a long while. So what was the impetus? I mean, there already were a lot of podcasts out there. Were you frustrated, Mike? Did you see anything? So they're just not getting to the depth of it? What what was the impetus? I know that you know you started the podcast with uh, with Justin Bozon. What was the impetus in the beginning for uh, doing the show? Well, you know, Justin actually brought the idea to me, and I I was very hesitant. And then, ironically, it was listening to another podcast about Kiss Meets the Phantom yeah. that really sparked me. Where I just said, these guys are just talking around the movie; they're never talking about what is actually happening in the film. And it was just such a frustrating listening experience, especially because Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park is such a rich tapestry of just awfulness that you can dive in so many different places if you just want to start talking about the dialogue or the sound effects or the music or any of these things. And they just weren't getting any of it. So really, it became kind of a defining things in a negative by saying, I want to be the podcast that doesn't do this, 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 or this. Uh-huh. So what you're trying to tell us, uh, you know, in the short form is that uh, something good actually came from this movie. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> At least I'd like to think so. Excellent. Can I just ask you, Mike, um, the, the projection booth is, is legendary for uh, for its length, basically. I mean, you, you go so in-depth, you do five, six, seven, eight-hour shows. How do you have time to do all this? Is It it must literally be like a full-time gig for you, isn't it? No, unfortunately, I, I still have to 
pay the bills with the regular job. So I just, I guess my wife would probably argue about this, but I apparently have some good time management skills or something. So a lot of it is preparing in advance. So, you know, looking at our Facebook page or through our app or whatever, you can see that we're already planned out until I want to say October of next year, maybe September. So we've already got a lot of those interviews in the can already. And a lot of times we won't even go into an episode unless we can get uh, some interviews around it. Sometimes we'll pick the film first and then see what we can get. Other times it is, okay, I get this interview, so let's make a show around it. I think it can be attributed to that good Detroit meth. (laughs) Meth, I hear you calling, but I can't come home right now. Nice. (laughs) So it's really just uh, trying to plan stuff out and get all our ducks in the row as as early as we possibly can. Yeah, Yeah, that's amazing. All right, what we'll do at this time, we'll go to a quick break. And then we'll actually discuss the film that was the impetus for the projection booth. If nothing else, I'm glad I gleaned that one really vital piece of information. You know, we can we can take our bats and balls and go home now. That's that's just fantastic. All right. <laughs> so we're going to go to a quick break, and you'll be um, back in a couple of minutes uh, discussing Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. You're listening to See Here with Bernie, Tim, and our very special guest, Mike White. We'll be back shortly. Hi, I'm John Water. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Kuhn. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Dwingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsbeck. Mr. T. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. Hello, see here, listeners. Morris speaking here. I'm in post-recording editing mode of the show, and I just thought it would be probably a good time just to let you know that we did have a slight technical difficulty during the recording of the show. Poor Bernie had Skype problems even before we started recording, and then halfway during the recording of the second part of the show, he just dropped out completely. Uh, I've edited our confusion and our calls of Bernie, Bernie, are you there out of the program? So it all sounds pretty seamless. But if you're sort of wondering, why is Bernie not contributing to the show so much? Well, now you know, because his Skype had problems. We did manage to get him back fairly late in the program. Bloody Skype. Oh, the troubles, the first world troubles of a, of a podcast recorder. Anyway, back to the show. Hope you're enjoying it. And uh, we'll catch you on the other side. Break. Morris here, Bernie and Bath, Tim and Soul, and Mr. Mike White in Detroit Rock City. You're listening to See Here, number 23, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, is the film under discussion for today's show. So before we get into discussion of Kiss or the film in great detail, just a few of the side details directed by someone called Gordon Hessler, written by Jan Michael Sherman and Dan Boudet, starring Kiss and Anthony Zerb. First shown on the NBC at the uh, 28th of October 1978. 
just three days before yeah. I turned 14 years old. Actually, I wanted to say one thing mm. before you, you continue. Yes. H- had any of you seen this when it would, it actually dropped for the first time? No, when it came, when it, I had to beg and plead with my father. I basically, I, I promised everything under the sun just to be able to have the 80 minutes to sit and, and bask in the glory that was the 1977 kiss. And, you know, looking back now and, and knowing what I know now, to me, it would almost be like somebody in uh, Jonestown saying, come on, Reverend Jones, just one more cup of Kool-Aid, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but at that time, man, at that time, I, I had to do, I had to witness the Holy Grail. Like, you know, there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Every kid in school, you know, they were, they were going to sit and watch it. And if you, if you didn't watch it, man, at that time, man, you were going to be ultimately shunned. I mean, forever. The fair question at this point, and I'll start with Mike there is at the time were you all KISS fans? So, Mike? I was not a KISS fan. My neighbors down the street who I hung out with a lot were big KISS fans. They had the posters and the albums and everything. I just really wasn't into that hard rock music. I was much more prepared for the next year when uh, the TV gods went unleashed the Star Wars holiday special. That was much more (laughs) my cup of tea. Yes. Which I think was kind of that one more cup of Kool-Aid kind of thing again. So I definitely can <laughs> yeah, empathize yeah. with you there, Tim. Yeah, I really yeah. didn't get into Kiss until I was uh, probably about 17, 18 years old. And then uh, I really fell for them hard. So what was the yeah. album that did it for you at the time? Uh, I think it was Destroyer that really was my entree into Kiss. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, Tim, given the fact that you were begging to be part of this, to, to watch the film... Were you yeah. into Kiss at the time, or was it just you wanted uh, to keep up with the rest of the class? No, no, man. I was, I was fully a full-fledged member of the army. Today, you know, I, I'd rather stand behind the Salvation Army, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but to tell you the truth, I mean, the first three albums, you know, like, I mean, as much as people laugh at Kiss today and just think, you know, of all the shtick and, you know, they've become kind of like a Vegas institution almost. The first three albums are damn good, man. I mean, I don't they're, care what anybody says. I'm, you know, I'm, it's a great power pop. Okay. Yeah, it's a, well, it's just amalgamation of, you know, the Dolls and Cooper and that whole shock rock thing. You know, they obviously they weren't the progenitors of it, but they just took they, they knew how to be unique. And they and they actually wrote some really, really catchy songs, you know. So the question remains, if they hadn't gone through the whole makeup and pyrotechnics and just constantly trying to sell their brand and sell their image would they be remembered maybe with some level of fondness like say cheap trick yeah i can see that you know something like cheap trick or nazareth or that kind of cult status but not becoming the institution that they were i mean the flip side of that question you asked morris is uh without all the uh the marketing and the makeup and, and the shtick and so on, would they have been anywhere near as popular or famous? No, no, no I, I guess this is sort of a question about legacy. You know, people might sort of come back nowadays and say, oh, you know, they were actually a really good band. Of course, they might have given up after four or five albums because they weren't going to take over the world. And obviously, world domination was was on their agenda and this was how they were going to do it. But I'm just talking from a musical perspective, not necessarily sure, yeah. from a from a cultural icon type of deal. Warren! Toronto! You feel good! All right then, listen. You know, we may be under clear blue skies, but you know, it's getting a little 
cool out tonight, but that ain't gonna stop us. Cause if we try hard enough, we gonna get this place. I said we gonna get this place. How did it happen? I was gonna say, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, but when it comes to their rise to fame and everything, I want to say that it was really that Alive album that put them on the map because yes. they kept saying, yes. you know, we have such an amazing live show and we want to right. capture that energy. And I think that's yep. really what pushed them through. And that again, that's where the whole Detroit Rock City thing comes in because of the importance of how Detroit and their their show at Cobo Arena and everything really kind of put them on the map finally. Right, Alive 1 and 2 were the big albums. I would say, honestly, that I was a fan right up until about this point, um, up until the solo records, because right after the solo records, you delved into uh, that... Uh, dia- uh, dia- uh, Dynasty. Uh, yeah, well, the atrocity. Which, which side of the world that you live on? <laughs> I was going to say that, the dawn of summer uh, atrocity. Yeah. Well, they were on the same label. Uh, Bernie, did you um, start out years ago as as a KISS fan musically? Um, well, I'm I'm a little younger than you guys, so uh, I wasn't really aware of KISS when this would have originally screened. 78, wasn't it? Yep. And the other thing as well is that they just, they weren't a thing in the UK. They were not big. They didn't have hits in the UK. We were all kind of, you know, wrapped up with Gary Glitter and the Sweet and all that kind of stuff instead. Right. Um, so KISS, KISS were never a phenomena over here. In fact, the first time I was aware of KISS would have been Marvel Comics because they did right. a uh, a KISS comic book, didn't they? And I remember ads for right. KISS records in Marvel Comics. Um, I had the KISS music, comic book. Yeah? I can be, oh, you've oh, yeah. got it, I bet. Tim? Yeah. And that is, there was, I don't know whether this was just rumor or truth or not, but apparently they all uh, drip some of their own blood into the printing ink, so there's a little bit of kiss right. in every one of those uh, comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the funny thing is, though, like I was saying about the amalgamation of the dolls and Cooper and stuff, I mean, Bernie, you guys had, you know, I mean, like Screaming Lord Such, and you had you know, oh, Arthur yes. Brown, and I mean... Yeah. You guys, you guys had all of that long before America did. So I mean, well, you know. I can see where you guys weren't impressed by Kiss because you you probably had like you know like like you said the Swede and Gary Glitter and Slade and yeah. all of that stuff beforehand. Yeah, no, it was strange. It was just one of those things that that never translated, and they've never really been big over here. Hmm. Um, the first time I'm, I was aware of them musically was probably. Uh, like crazy, crazy nights. When was that? In the eighties, kind of. Oh yeah. Non makeup. That, that, that was yeah, yeah. That was unmasked, no makeup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what I, I was gonna, I'm curious about. Seventy eight, Phantom of the Park comes out. Was this Kiss at the peak of their powers, or just the peak of their fame? I guess. Look, you know what? In in Australia, and I just sort of presumed it was you know the case over in the states and anywhere else that they were popular. The Dynasty album came out and. Because of, you know, the atrocity that I was made for loving you, sort of appealing to the wider populace that weren't already Kiss fans. I mean, okay, we, in Australia, like rock and roll all night, uh, the version of uh, Alive One was, you know, a huge hit. And I don't think that there was another really, really huge song for, you know, the general public that weren't already part of the Kiss army until Dynasty came out. But yeah, Dynasty, as far as this side of the world was concerned, was the peak of their power. And I, I don't recall there being another more anticipated album than Unmasked. It went straight to number one in the first week and then dropped out of the charts maybe just a few weeks later. It was 
I think a big letdown. I don't know. People they just were, they heard Shandy and thought, huh, what's this? You know, it's, this isn't hard rock. Uh, but yeah. even before that, the solo albums. I mean, when you really sit right. down and listen to the solo records, man, you talk about you know disappearing up your own ass. Holy shit. <laughs> Gene Simmons one because you know at that time he was my favorite. Well, him and Ace were the two cool ones to me. Oh yeah, the Ace record is really good, man. And we'll we'll get into it with the film, but um, yeah, it, you know you can really hear them starting to veer off with the solo albums. You know that they were they were really starting to you know they they had made their mark in what they wanted to do, and now they were becoming artistic. Actually, so interesting you mentioned that. I was seeing something on uh, the web. I think yesterday whereby um i think paul stanley's latest side project he now fancies himself as an old-time soul crooner so he's leading a band which is doing all motown type music have you seen or heard anything about that mike <laughs> no i haven't i have seen his performance as the phantom and phantom of the opera though uh, okay very happy for that uh-huh. hi i'm paul stanley I want to tell you a little background into what's going on right now. About 10 years ago in London, I saw a show which really changed for me how I saw the possibilities in musical theater. When I saw The Phantom of the Opera, I decided right then and there that someday this would be something for me to do. This would be the vehicle for me to make my entrance into a whole new field. That time has come now. So starting May 25th for 10 weeks, I will be your phantom there you go so uh, that's you know old hard rockers never die they it, become soul singers or or, or go into uh, musical theater and just to add something weird about paul stanley if you ever get a chance go on youtube and type up paul stanley folgers commercial this is your wake-up call time to reach go for it all folgers third inside of me and i know what i can be Because God, he, yes, he does a Folgers commercial for Folgers coffee, and it's the creepiest thing you've ever seen. All right, this is for all the little girls out there. We got some girls out there tonight. I said we got some girls out there tonight. All right, then this is for all you strutters. There was um, an episode of uh, the Love That Album podcast where Eric Reanimator and I discussed a couple of albums, Raw Power by Iggy and the Stooges and Keller by Alice Cooper. Now, in that episode, we brought up the notion that what differentiated the two bands, and I mean Alice Cooper as a band before Alice sort of became uh, Vincent Fernier or the other way around, what differentiated the two bands was the sense of danger. Alice were all about horror movie theatrics as entertainment and it looked dangerous in a movie sort of way and you know vincent was playing the character of alice 
in a scary movie. And, you know, James Osterberg was also playing a character called Iggy Pop, but unlike Alice Cooper, he really seemed more genuinely dangerous, not just in a horror movie sort of way. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because when you, I guess when you think of Kiss, or I mean, maybe the average person thinks of Kiss, they might sort of think, oh, well, they're that really loud band and you've got uh, Gene Simmons wearing the scary devil makeup. And despite, you know, Gene's tongue and the blood and the pyrotechnics, I think it's really several rungs down the ladder as being a dangerous band. But do you think that they wanted to give off that image that they were dangerous? Kiss was like the bane to every church group and every parent's worst nightmare. And, you know, like they were just the absolute, uh, the lowest you could go. And I, and I don't think it was because of the fact that parents just thought they were, you know, unpure and, and that they, they were, you know, unwholesome and, you know, that type of thing. I think deep down secretly is that parents were really embarrassed for their kids, that these were their heroes, right? That, that they were just so, you know, it was so cheesy to parents and that they were like, you know, they, they really couldn't tell their kids, you know, like, this is what you like. Like this, you know, like, oh, my God, man, look, look at these guys. You know, they're jumping around in pantyhose. Like, what the hell? You know, like, I think I think it was a lot of that. So but the parents really couldn't come out and, you know, uh, criticize their kids taste in a certain way. So I think they had to come out and say, oh, these guys are kind of you know bad or they're kind of evil or they, they, they kind of look like they're, you know, from the bad side of the tracks. When in fact, that was all the, the marketing, you know, that was, of course, that was the way they marketed it. Because any anything that the parents hated, of course, the kids were immediately going to glom onto, you know. But I think, you know, it was a lot of deep down like, oh, my God, I have to like my old man having to endure 80 minutes of kiss with me sitting in front of the tube. And my dad's just got his hands over his eyes like, oh, my God, I can't believe my kids watching this. You know, I don't think that they necessarily I think there was a big disconnect when it came to the kiss that most people seem to enjoy. At least my neighbors down the street seem to enjoy versus the kiss that was on TV for right. Paul and Halloween special and especially the, right. the kiss meets the fan. Um, it seemed like you know they just were completely declawed for America when they were put on TV. But I want to say that the live shows and those kind of things were a little bit more risky, risque kind of thing. I mean, you know, girls sure. always taking off their tops, all that kind of stuff. But I imagine that there was a little bit of danger. I imagine there were worse groups at the time. I mean. Kiss was always lumped in when it came to the whole, like, oh, yeah, like Wasp is We Are Satan's People and Kiss is Knights and Satan's Service and all this kind of crap. I think they were probably seen as being more dangerous, but then just kind of got neutered as they went along a little bit. So, and I think definitely as we move from uh, America being more of a hard rock kind of thing into more of a disco era and them embracing that kind of stuff, uh, I can definitely see where they were... Um, being made more safe and but I, I definitely think that gene simmons would disagree with well he disagree with everything that i'm saying he, he probably <laughs> wants money for this podcast so yeah yeah no gratitude need be voiced your mind speaks to us you're looking for someone but it's not kiss so let's talk a little bit about the film itself. I'll read the IMDb synopsis. It says, 
so Kiss meets the Phantom at the park. It's the tale of rock band Kiss and their efforts to thwart a diabolical plan by mad scientist Abner Devereaux. Devereaux has found a way to clone humans into robots in his laboratory at an amusement park. It just so happens that he plans to use the Kiss concert as a platform to unleash his plan on the world. Kiss must use their special powers to stop him. Alright, so I'm going to ask, this is the big question. Is this really a Kiss film? And what, <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll tell you why I said let, let me just prelude. So the history of rock and roll was littered with any number of film vehicles for rock and roll stars. And so obviously, you know, the, the, the first most of us think of will be A Hard Day's Night and Help. Uh, any number of Elvis Presley films, you know, the early oh, yeah. Richard films. And a year after Kiss... Paul Simon would release One Trick Pony, which was far more introspective. There was a, you know, a famous thing that John Lennon said about making help as opposed to Hard Day's Night. Was by the time they got to help, he said that they had become co-stars or side actors in their own film. Now, I, I mean, that's, you know, he was involved in it, so I can, you know, that's his perspective. But just watching it, I always still feel, no, the Beatles are the stars of this film. But it is a more wider story rather than just being 24 hours in the life like A Hard Day's Night was. But really, when you watch this, that statement could have very well been the case for Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. And we're not even like into discussing yet what you know, it, it, its shortcomings are. And we all agree that you know, it's not necessarily a great film. But I, I wonder what Hanna-Barbera, who were the production company, were thinking when they were basically saying, well, we're going to get the biggest rock and roll band in the world and we're not going to even put them in the film. And this is the edition of the film that I watch. I know that you guys... Well, at least, yeah, Tim, you've seen a different version of the film. But mm. in the um, the one that showed on NBC, Kiss don't even show up for, I think, about 30, 35 minutes into the film. Apart, Yeah, it's about the same. Crazy. It's about the same. Mm. Yeah, it's about the same in Attack of the Phantom. So, I mean, I can just imagine that watching this in 1978, if you're a diehard Kiss fan, you're thinking, I don't want to see these guys. I don't want to see this romance between uh, these two people. I mean, in in a way that like the, the main romantic couple in the film are almost like the couples that you see in some of the Marx Brothers films. They're, they're there right. and you just can't wait for them to piss off so we can get to the to the Marx Brothers. And I'm not for a moment right. suggesting Kiss of the Marx Brothers. But, I mean, I don't know. Oh. Do, do you think, is this a weakness of the film or was it you know, too many other things wrong with the film? What I find is kind of interesting is that, you know, the film starts off with, you know, rock and roll all night, you know, with the roller coasters and the band playing, you know, over the introduction. And you're just like, wow, yeah, like, come on, let's go. And like you say, then it peters out. And then the music that they overlay on the whole plot is some of the lamest Kiss stuff that comes from the solo albums. You know, a lot of Paul Stanley's, you know, it almost sounds like AOR, like Air Supply. It just sounds like, you know, really, really, it's the most tepid Kiss stuff that was ever released. And I'm like, come on, when are you going to deliver the goods? You're right. You know, it takes a long time. And it's finally only until the first performance that, you know, things really start to kick up a notch again. But, uh, you know, but I find what's interesting about this film, too, is, 
you know, Hanna-Barbera, as everybody knows, you know, was an animation company, right? You know, that they were the ones that put out, you know, all the Saturday morning goodness that we all grew up on. But this, was, I think, was the was them trying to, you know, veer off into a new venture that they'd never really, you know, done before. And I think it was a combination of them pushing Magic Mountain. I think it was a lot of promotion of Magic Mountain and Kiss themselves. I think it was an amalgamation of the three, you know? So is Magic Mountain a real thing? Oh yeah, yeah. It's a real, it's a real park. Still there. Mm. So just sort of thinking about about this one, I think I guess uh, regardless of any of the small minutiae things that are wrong with it, but I think ultimately what I think doesn't work is well probably because it is Hanna Barbera, because it is a TV film, because it is a family friendly film. We're faced with a problem that it can't go far enough. I think its biggest sin is that it's dull. So, you know, you can get a, a great big dumb rock film that we all love, like Rock and Roll High School, or a film that we discussed only a few months ago, and I know that you've discussed it as well, Mike, Black Roses. Those films, they just, they know what they are, and they're having a whole lot of fun with it, and that's why they're completely rewatchable. They bring on the music, they bring on the great music, uh, and, and, okay, granted, in Rock and Roll High School, the Ramones are, you know, the side actors in, in this, but it's not really their story. We, I guess we know that, but there's still, once they're there, and even when they're not there, it's always fun. It's just really great to watch in that regard. But Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, it just never gets beyond safe mode. It's, you know, the Ramones, at least in the in Rock and Roll High School, it was about a version of the Ramones. In the Beatles song, it was about a version of the Beatles. Here we got Kiss casting themselves as superheroes without really any superpowers to, to speak of. Well, oh, come on. You've got the, uh, you've got the six million dollar man, you know, the infrared eye and the, and the ability to hear and to hear through your eye. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I sell them, I sell them short. Forgive me. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, one of them, uh, well, they, they can fly and, like, walk along beams and stuff. And then, of course, spitting fire and, and roaring yeah. like a lion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're the superpowers that the world's been waiting for. I mean, I, I know, right. I've, I've not really, I'm not really a big fan of the superhero films. I haven't been seeing any of the Marvel films of, you know, the last 10, 15 years. But I sort of don't imagine that modern audiences would be uh, sold by his uh, uh, super lion man, his superpower. He can growl like the MGM lion on Will. You know, right. just doesn't work. And and um, I was also going to say that Anthony Zerb's mad scientist, for me, isn't really mad enough. Very well, then. Come ahead, Kiss. I may be outnumbered, but I am not outmanned. I would have loved it if he was a Herbert West type, you know, if, if we got, like, right. the, the, the nut job out of Reanimator. But, you know, we right. don't get... He's, he's like, oh, right. mad. I'm going to... Uh, you're you're sacking me, right? I'm going to turn against right. you. It's very very mild, a very mild mad scientist. Right. Well, what's really funny, like um, when you think about like Kiss has these four talismans that give them their power, and what's really funny is that you know if you read the comic book that came out at that time, you it has the whole origin story of where Kiss gets their powers from, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that what they actually did was they went and uh, ported it over from the comic book 
But the problem is, is that if you're not a diehard Kiss fan and you're just kind of like, you know, your uh, pedestrian viewer or whatever, what have you, you're going to watch this and be like, how the hell can these guys, where the hell did they get this stuff from? Like, how did, uh, you know, like, it, it just doesn't, it just doesn't add up. But if you're, you know, uh, like I said, a diehard Kiss fan, part of the army, then, you know, you'll say, oh yeah, man, like that's all part of the comic book. Sure, sure. You know, it would be, it would be really interesting to, to see, you know, a video of Kiss today looking back and watching the film again. Just the reactions on their face because, you know, to me, this is almost like the Stones' cocksucker blues mm. where, you know, where the Stones made, you know, they, they said, yeah, you can you can shoot this. And then later they went, uh, no, nah, we don't want this put out there, you know. They, and, and it was for an entirely different reason. Mm. But I could, see, I could see Kiss watching this now just going, Oh my God, man! I that was me. Like, oh, geez, like you know, because whereas they might have thought it was a good business move, like you say, you know, they come off as as so wilted, and neutered that it's 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 just you know really you feel bad for them. So, Tim, are you suggesting that maybe we get Paul, Ace, and Peter in a theater and just? videotape them as we watch as they're watching all of their movies up on screen and kind of a Shia LaBeouf-esque performance art experiment uh I'd love to see that I do I would just love to see it you know and I think it, what's kind of funny is you know the story about Spinal Tap when that came out all these uh musicians you know who went and seen it a lot of them were really pissed off because they're like that's my life you know like that's me <laughs> That's me. Like that happened, you know. I I got electrocuted when I touched a uh, you know a, a live mic and uh, or we we're backstage. We got lost. Like I mean, it really touched a nerve. I'm and one, I'm, I'm, I was just gonna say, I'm wondering. You bring up Spinal Tap. I'm really wondering whether uh, the Derek Smalls incident in the airport was inspired by uh, something Gene Simmons might have done walking through an airport. <laughs> right. Do you have any metal objects in your pockets? Yeah. Take them out and put them in the bucket. And, and to, to, to keep on with the tap, man, the question that comes up to my mind is, which one was Nigel? <laughs> <laughs> I you specifically know. said Spinal Tap and then the Puppet Show. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in Kiss Meets the Phantom, you kind of get both at once. Mm. Right. Well, what's funny, too, about this film that I, uh, before I forget, is the dubbing of the voices. Half the time they dub them and half the time they don't. There's times when Paul's voice is his, his voice. And, uh, but then, you know, they dub, uh, Ace, and Ace is almost like a Curly character. Hi, Curly. They're all their voices. Well, except for the electronic modification on jeans, except for Peter Chris. And that um, is yep. totally one of the guys from Hanna-Barbera, like one of the cartoon voices coming in and, and doing that job, which is just amazing because he just sounds right. so fake through the whole thing. I love it. <laughs> well, yeah, so does Ace, because there's a, there's a point when uh, at the very end of the film where Paul says something about he tried to reach too far and he failed. And then Ace is just like, He's almost like, he's, he's almost doing that. Like, it's like, and there's points like Ace doesn't, he has the least amount of dialogue in the film. I mean, shit, Peter even says more than Ace. But I think a lot of it has to do maybe with Ace instead of the whoop, whoop, whoop. He was more the glug, glug, glug. 
So I think he was uh, he was three sheets of the wind when they were doing this. I mean, so, you know, they, I knew I knew that Paul and uh, Gene were you know staunch against alcohol and drugs and alcohol as much as I like the cold gin. But I think Peter and uh, Ace they were uh, it must have been pretty jacked to to be able to to endure this and make this film. I think. Well, they wouldn't allow anyone to talk to them about it, like in interviews, for years. Is that not right? Or, right, 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 right. Yeah, they they wouldn't even bring it up. It was just a dead issue. Hmm. And I mean, yeah, this was the thing, you know, like today's age of, you know, the Internet, there's no way to deny anything because, you know, I mean, everything is so open and exposed. But back in the day, it's like it's like the old Eddie Murphy bit when Eddie Murphy says, if anybody ever accuses you of anything, and even if you get caught, man, you say, I didn't do it. <laughs> no, no, it was me. Ahoy, mates, the ownership approaches. I mean, bucko, with a scurvy crew steaming close behind, and I do mean steaming. Mike, I, I wanted to ask you, because um, as I said to you before, I wanted to wait till after we recorded this before I listened to your uh, Projection Booth episode discussing this film. But just as a bit of a heads up, so was there anyone who you spoke to in the episode who was like a, a writer for this or, or had any uh, inside stories that, yeah, how they developed uh, the script for this and you know, were Kiss ever in consultation with the writers or did they just say, here's your script, go for it? What happened in that regard, do you know? Uh, you know, I really wanted to talk to some of the screenwriters, um, but unfortunately I was unable to get a hold of anybody. We, we ended up talking to one of the producers about it and um he was a good sport about everything and uh we ended up talking a little bit more about his dad than, than anything um his dad had brought over the godzilla films and it was one of the big godzilla anniversary years and everything so we talked about that but then yeah we did talk a little bit more about kiss and just more of the logistics of the shoot and everything um i would have loved to have known some of the decisions behind what was going on with why that film was the way that it was i know it was even more cheesy the screenplay i managed to get my hands on and that has this whole opening about you know the the powers and everything and there i think uh, to the point earlier it goes into more of those talismans and that kind of stuff um but yeah it was it's such a strange mix man of the the love story that you're talking about the mystery of the park and everything trying to wedge in those uh, musical acts whenever you possibly can. And then you've got your superheroes as kiss. And it's just such a, a crazy blend or actually it's not a blend. They just kind of all are standing around and don't really know which way to go. Right. I don't know about you guys, but I've always thought, you know, if this film wasn't shot in America, you know, damn well that it would have come out of Italy. <laughs> <laughs> it's got that Italian feel to it. Just absolutely in spades. You know, it's just where, you know, if they, if, they, if something's, you know, in the background, just use it. I mean, if there's a, if there's a rubber Frankenstein mask, use it. If there, whatever, whatever's available, just grab it and we'll throw it in the frame. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I was going to say that uh, one cameo appearance or, or, or not cameo because he wasn't not like a big actor, but someone who. Brian James. Um, yes. Yeah. In, it took me, yeah. it took me a few minutes to think, hang on. I know who that is. I know. Um, 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 yeah. and then it, oh shit. Blade Runner. Wake up. Time to die. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this was this is probably about a year before Blade Runner, wasn't it? Yeah, he goes from fighting replicants to becoming a replicant. <laughs> right. Yes. Right. Yes, right. indeed. Oh my god. Right. Well, there's sometimes like you know the the placing of the the Kiss songs throughout the film. Like I was saying, you know, it just seems a lot really stilted and awkward. Aside from there's two moments that I I quite like in it, and that's 
where they're all sitting poolside with the dejected girl while, while Peter is playing his uh, his beloved Beth. Just a few more hours And I'll be back home to you I think I hear them calling Oh, Beth, what can I do? Beth, what can I do? Yes, oh, that, <laughs> no, that, that, was, that was a completely gratuitous moment, but I did like oh, it. Yeah. Right, right. And the other one that I really liked that I thought really worked well and it actually made me think of, believe it or not, the Warriors was uh, when they fight the White Wolfmen when they're playing back in the New York Groove. Nice. Apes is more like it. And when they, they all lose their head over you, oh, right, <laughs> right, right, right. And when Kiss Kiss comes in, it's almost like a scene from the Warriors where they're fighting the Baseball Furies or something, right? It's just like right. our, our, our gang versus your gang. And then when you hear that intro of New York Groove, and then you see all the Wolfmen come jumping off the roller coaster, it's just yeah. So I, I don't remember. Did anyone at any stage in the film ever say, "Can you dig it"? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, oh, damn shame. I guess while we're talking now about you know fight scenes and the like, there's nothing that I think that's quite as amusing in a family-friendly film than a gang in a family-friendly film. You talking to us? What's your beef? You a cop? It's cool. Chopper and slime don't hurt nobody unless they want to. Fun. So you got uh, your, your characters Chopper, Chopper Slime, <laughs> and Dirty D, and they call oh. each other, call each other man. And listen, man, Chopper doesn't hurt anyone who he doesn't want to hurt or, or something right. like that. Mike, you would know this. Who was that actor, man? The guy that was playing Chopper. I swear he was in like Clint Eastwood films. Yeah, uh, John Dennis Johnston. And uh, yeah. yeah, he's been a ton of stuff. Um, gosh, I remember he'd like, always he play even, a like, redneck asshole. Yeah. He'd always play redneck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's been he's in a even, ton even of Even in stuff like Annie Hall and Close Encounters. Really? Who is wow. Annie Hall? Oh, I'm trying to remember. I just remember his face showing up in there. Right. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, uh, he's I'm always uh, he's a cop. He's a policeman. Oh, what, like in, in Los Angeles when he's crashing yes. the cars? Yes. Oh, yeah. no, I'm going to have to watch that again. Not that I need an excuse. I love that film. But a really familiar face. He's just hes just a guy I remember from the – if you grew up in the 70s and you know, and you watch a lot of 70 film, he, he was just a guy that always popped up as a redneck asshole or just somebody, the heavy or just that secondhand shitbag. Exactly. Oh, yeah. He was – he had a great face. Mm-hmm. I'm embarrassed to say that I can't recall, apart from the Amiga Man, don't think I've seen much else with Z Anthony Zerb. What the hell are you? Definition of a scientist. A man who understood nothing until there was nothing left to understand. 
What's um, what else is his background? Well, he was in The Matrix uh, Which three I and two. It was horrible. He was down in Zion, but he was um, he was in one of my favorite films of all time, The Laughing Policeman, back in the early seventies. Right. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched that. I think last year. Yeah. I can't remember. I can't remember where. He and was. he was the baddie in The Mega Man. He's the guy. Right. That was that, well, that's, yeah, that's that's yeah. the one thing. I mean, when when I was I don't know maybe about ten years old, I first saw that on television, and I think it was on TV. Like every year, I must have watched it at least a dozen times. I think he played a heavy, too, in some of the kid stuff that the Hanna-Barbera, I'm not uh, Hanna-Barbera, but the Croft brothers put out. Mm -hmm. I think, like, there was a super show, the Croft brothers super show, or, like, I remember seeing him on TV as a kid playing a mad scientist in, like, some of those 70s live-action kid shows. He was also the guy who, um, when they were chasing down Cool Hand Luke, he was the dog handler, and he's the guy, like, they done run blue to death. <laughs> right, right, right. He always showed up in so many good things. So it, it's a shame they didn't give him more madness to play with in this. Because I, I mean, I'm still yeah. sort of thinking a couple of years earlier where Bill Finley is uh, doing uh, the Phantom of the Paradise. My music is for Phoenix. I want to shake and sing it. Anyone else that tries, die. You know, he's he just puts on such a over the top performance, and you know, really here he is. Ah, so your kiss, are you? Right. Okay. Right. Uh, oh, what is, remember, this is probably a good lead into um, one of the things I wanted to say about the, the whole issue of time is skewed in this film. So from the time he gets, from the time he gets Sam, his his assistant, who for no known reason he hypnotizes, he gets him to take some photos of Kiss, and then he takes from these photos. He's right. I'm going to go create some replicants of Kiss, and he seems to do it like within minutes. He you know has a Brilliant. He has this photo of Gene Simmons, and he looks at him and says, So, you're the demon, are you? <laughs> and just does like a pencil circle around his face, and then five minutes later, Gene Simmons' clone comes out and beats the shit out of a, uh, out of a bunch of police officers. <laughs> right. I was just going to say, it's also strange that not only can he do the uh, cybernetic organisms, the, the, the replicant kind of thing, but then he also has that weird little thing that'll put on somebody's neck and turn them into a robot. That cracked me up the most because when they finally pull the component that they put in his neck is an Orden Garden Variety Tandy Electronics slash Radio Shack 10 cent resistor that they stick in his neck. It's the most you know, basic basic of electronic components, and that is a mind controller. I think that's absolutely brilliant. Anthony Zerbe, uh, that old uh, trope with the the evil arch nemesis or the scientist who always knows everything about their nemesis. I mean, you know, they about their rivals. You know, like he's like, yeah, they've got talismans. You've got to go get them. And it's like, well, how the hell do you know they've got talismans, man? Like, where did you get that information off of Wikipedia? Oh, like, see, oh, yeah, he gives her the little the little badge to get her around the place. And oh, right, 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 yeah, when it's got the camera, it's got the camera, oh, and then, cool. then he finds out, right, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Mad yeah. scientists always have closed circuit TV, don't you know? Yeah, he's got right. them all over that park, man. <laughs> <laughs> Just going a bit outside of the film again for a second, was there ever going to be any other way to put Kiss in a film? I mean, we've already gone and discussed that, you know, uh, the Beatles were themselves in a hard day's night, and... Even though we're still the Beatles in help, just on a bit of an adventure, but was there ever going to be a way that you could put Kiss into a film, good or bad, that didn't involve them what? being this, these comic book type characters because of the image that they'd gone and created for themselves in the music world? I would have loved to have seen a remake of The Knack and How to Get It with Kiss. Yeah. I, I have never seen that. That's um, that's also made... Ah, oh, I've forgotten. This, uh, the, the director of Help and... Right. Uh, 
and uh, had right. I forgot Richard Lester. Lester, yes. Right, right. I would have. Uh, I would love to have seen somebody like Robert Altman do something like Nashville with Kiss. <laughs> In the seventies, and just do it all like you know behind the stage, you know like the roadies and all of it, you know, and almost be something like a combination of like you know Kiss and Star Is Born, you know, like I mean, I I would I would love to be able to see something like that. That would be awesome, right? Well, they could have really turned the whole unmasking thing into a media event more than it was, and made a movie out of that, and have them playing themselves, but nobody really knows that it's them and stuff. So, yeah, why not? You could have gotten Milos Forman to do something with that, kind of play with, like, documentary and narrative at the same time. Absolutely. Tim, there was another thing that came to my mind. You know, we were speaking before we went online, or before we started recording, that... Uh, Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but I got to say that there's a bit in Phantom of the Park that reminded me of uh, one of Gilbert's favorite films, The Tingler. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream, scream for your lives. The Tingler is loose in this theater, and if you don't scream, it may kill you. Scream, scream, keep screaming, scream for your lives. It's here. The tingler has been paralyzed by your screaming. There is no more danger. We will now resume the showing of the movie. The most famous bit in the tingler that Gilbert keeps referring to about uh, uh, Vincent Price going into the cinema and saying, Everyone, scream, scream for your lives. The tingler is out to get you. Scream. And then they, yeah, they, yeah. they get rid of the beast and they say, Okay, you, we are now returning to our film. Yeah, yeah. Sit back and enjoy the rest of it. So in this film, uh, spoiler alert, Kiss have a final battle with their doppelgangers, the clones that the Anthony Zerb character has gone and created. Right. Whilst the... The, their doppelgangers are doing a concert. You know, the real Kiss has been captured and they escape and they meet their doppelgangers, the, the clones on stage and they have this big fight with them and then they finally defeat them and Paul Stanley goes to the microphone and says, Does everybody feel good? Are you ready for the real Kiss? Hey, is everybody ready to party? You know, not, not uh, anything that's more relevant like, geez, I'm sorry about that shit that's just gone down, guys. You know, um, right. uh, but we're superheroes and we had to defeat our, our evil uh, clones. Yeah. You just you just seen us murder ourselves. Let's rock! <laughs> you know, and that was so funny, man. It really, really makes. At the time when I was a kid, man, I thought like Kiss on stage were so cool. But now looking back, man, it's just like, oh my god, you know, you've got Gene on one side, he's like stomping grapes, you know, stomping imaginary grapes, and then you've got you know Paul Stanley, like you know, looking at the crowd. Who likes to put live mice in the underpants and you feel them running around? Whoa! You know, and you just see him like you know, he's, he's just dancing around like he's got mice in his tights, you know, and it's just hilarious. I love his between song banter. How many you girls like to get licked? Oh yeah, right, yeah. right, and it's hilarious. It's just like Toronto. Who's ready for some cold gin? You know, like, and it's like, and, when you, and it's almost like he's waiting for everybody to tune up, or something's going down, and 
you know, he, he really doesn't quite know how to, you know, really hold the crowd with the, anything aside from the general, like, are y'all feeling good? And then two minutes later, are you still feeling good? <laughs> <laughs> Is there anybody out there that's a little bit nasally congested? Yeah, it's funny. And you know what's really funny, too, is, Morris, have you seen uh, the cartoon series Metalocalypse? Oh, no, I haven't. Oh my God! You you have to say like you've seen it, obviously, right? I don't think so. No. Oh man, there's a there's an animated uh, series called Metalocalypse about this band called Death Clock, and uh, and it, you have to watch this because it totally decimates all the stereotypes of heavy metal, right? And they've got this one character. He's a rock and roll clown called Doctor Roxo, and Doctor Roxo is like an amalgamation of like David Lee Roth and every '80s glam character with Paul Stanley, and he's like. I'm the rock and roll clown. I do cocaine. And it's just hilarious, right? Like it's when you see it, you're just like, oh my God, that's totally Paul Stanley and David Lee Roth combined, like like a Frankenstein monster or that, right? But yeah, like uh, Metalocalypse is amazing, man. Like it's a really, really biting series. It's so funny. I mean, it's great for metalheads, but at the same time, for people that are kind of stepping outside of it, it's really, really funny. And I mean, they, they totally riff on Kiss a lot through that series, you know, even though they're supposed to be a death metal band. All the tropes of, you know, playing the, the giant show and, you know, the manager and all of it, it's it's all there. It's great. The film itself almost seems like an episode of Scooby-Doo, right? Oh, yeah. And what, and what they actually did is recently... Kiss released uh, Hanna-Barbera put out Scooby-Doo meets Kiss and they actually just did an animated film of Kiss meets Scooby-Doo in, in an amusement park. Holy moly. They, they've done that at least once before. Was this a new one? Because I remember having that actually taped off a TV on VHS. No, this is a new one. This just came out in the last oh, wow. year. Holy cow. Yeah. I love yeah, yeah. Those, those Scooby-Doo movies. Those are amazing. It's, right. it's fascinating that it, it, something would have been created in 2014 or 2015, still revolving around a band which, you know, despite a loyal group of followers, has really had their popularity heyday 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. they kind of had their and, and, fun already. And the irony to Kiss is the idea that the movie is about, you know, making replicants of Kiss, but actually, when you know the history of Kiss, in the band, there's actually replicants themselves, because, I mean, you know, someone else has taken over the uh, the uh, Ace character, and someone took over the Catman character, and, and that's the way that they see it. Like, you know, Stanley and Simmons are saying, even if, you know, we, we become so arthritic, we can't get up there and keep wagging our tongues and our asses when we're 75 years old, we're going to find somebody else to take our place. Mm. And I, and I, and I think that's really ironic, you know, how the film goes into like, Oh my God, there's another kiss. And it's like, sure. There's always going to be another kiss, man. That's the, you know, that's the dynasty. It's going to go on forever. You know? Yeah. I saw them on their reunion tour a few years ago. They played Tiger stadium. It was pretty awesome. And Afterwards, I found out that it actually wasn't uh, Peter Chris on the drums. I think it was Ace on the guitar, but I can't even be sure. So it's kind of crazy oh. how they could uh, right. pull the wool over your wouldn't, eyes. Wouldn't have happened if they'd uh, kept the makeup off. They wouldn't have pulled the wool over your eyes, Mr. White. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, any final thoughts about uh, the film itself? We've, it seems like we've discussed a lot about uh, you know the kiss phenomenon itself rather than as much about the film but it's still been a really fascinating conversation nevertheless so any any final thoughts about the film itself if you're into like stuff like ms 3tk you know and you're you're up for a fun time i mean like you know you can tear the shit out of this film and it's hilarious i mean unintentionally of course but i would say you know 
I would put this right along the side of, I'd watch this on a double with Rock and Roll Nightmare or something along the likes of that, or even even Black Roses, I know which you preferred, Morris. But, oh, by, by a country mile. Right, but I would still I would still put this alongside of that as, you know, kind of just into that whole subgenre of, you know, the, the heavy metal cheese, you know? I mean, we, you know, we needed Mike, Mike Beardo on here. Because he's the guy that, you know, really knows his stuff about all of that, you know. But I would say, yeah, I, I would put this alongside of those two films, Rock and Roll, Nightmare, and Black Roses. Well, if we ever do another heavy metal film, we should probably see if we can reach out to him. I know he works for Gilbert and Frank, so it uh, shouldn't be too hard to get hold of. Uh, Mike, any, yeah. fi- any fi- actually, so here's, here's one question I want to ask you, because... Uh, I know Tim watched the Italian release version and I watched the original NBC version. You would have seen both. So do you have a preference for one over the other or any major differences? Well, the the biggest differences uh, that I remember are the music. So Tim mentioned uh, Back in the New York Groove. That is not in the U.S. version. Mm-hmm. It's much more cartoony type music as you're going along. So it, it definitely sounds like, you know, they hired the musicians at Hanna-Barbera and just said, hey, come on over to the studio and we need you to do a couple temp tracks for us or something. So it's it's interesting the mix of the Kiss music versus not the Kiss music when it comes to Attack versus not. And Attack looks a lot better. It's It's presented off of the... Kissography, the volume two, which I'm amazed that they even put it on there and they just kind of snuck it out. Like, mm-hmm. no, you know, I, I don't even remember if it's on like the label or anything, <laughs> but it's, uh, I definitely prefer the TV version just because it is more cartoonish and it just is more fitting. And yeah, I mean, the, because it, it's just a bad movie and it's wonderfully bad. I mean, I want to say that at one point you can see one of the stunt guys. I mean, the stunt guys, when they're they're being kissed, it just a, is amazing. And one of the stunt guys for, I want to say for Paul, is actually an African-American gentleman. So that's hilarious <laughs> for me. Yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even pick up on that. Oh, my gosh. I mean, <laughs> now you, you're going to make you're gonna tell me where it is the whole film again to find that, Mike. <laughs> But I love that one gymnastics move that uh, Ace pulls off when he's actually doing the the backflips when you know, yeah. when they the roller coaster and you just see, you can tell it looks like a trained gymnast you know the guy's just doing this you know in platform boots nonetheless you know it's like oh my god like that's that's unbelievable I don't know how many times I've seen this movie but as I was watching it before I was quoting almost every line before they would say it and I was like man I think I've seen this too many times. <laughs> Right. So to the best of your knowledge, has film actually sort of ever had like a, in a revival cinema, has it ever had a release? You know, not that I'm aware of. I think that would be a no. fantastic idea. And I, I'm still right. 100% behind the whole idea of, uh, you know, that whole Shia LaBeouf uh, experiment, by the way. So I, I would like that to happen. I would love to see right. just a close up of those guys watching their own movie. Right. You know, that's the thing, man. I, I could just imagine. We all agreed on this, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and do you remember when we signed that contract? Uh, no, I was pissed. Oh, well, yeah, we signed for you anyways. It's like, yeah. Yeah. Now, gents, uh, unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, our uh, beloved attorney <laughs> dropped off the call before, but it seems like he's back now. Mr. Stick. I am back, yes. We're, we're, we've, yeah. just, we've just finished uh, shitbagging you behind your back, so um, now you want to give well, your, your final... Yeah, of course. <laughs> you want to give your... <laughs> do you want to give you know, a few minutes worth of uh, thought about the film? Yeah, sure. Okay, you guys probably covered everything. 
I'm going to say, I expect. That's, but, a, that's, uh, a, that's okay. We, you, know, you come from come from a place like as someone who you said didn't have uh, Kiss as a cultural phenomenon in a, in this country. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole thing kind of played out like a, a Scooby Doo cartoon, really, didn't it? And considering it was produced by Hanna Barbera, that's uh, that's not a surprise. What I was surprised at, considering how big Kiss were at this point, was just the general level of cheapness and ineptitude about the whole thing. Yeah, it was just mind-bogglingly bad. Very, very poorly put together, very poorly shot and directed, and the dialogue was was pretty dreadful. So let me ask, um, was, it, was there anything about it that, in a whatever you want to call it, ironic or, or any sort of way that made you smile, that you thought, you know, oh yeah, alright, it, it's crap, but I sort of enjoyed this moment? Um, Not really. The, the things I enjoyed most, I'm afraid, <laughs> was... Uh, I, Spotting Brian James as a long-haired kind of goofy cop in the yes, background, yes. and th- that was kind of the bit which got me most excited, really. Yeah, may- maybe I shouldn't have rejoined the conversation because <laughs> I don't have too much to add. I don't know. In briefly, what 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 was your uh, guys' take on it? I assume we're all in a fairly similar boat here, Mike. Well, I was comparing it a lot to Fellini and um, just. <laughs> Especially kind of the circus atmosphere and everything. So right. I would say that this was kind of like Kisses Eight and a Half. Okay. Right. <laughs> I, uh, I got more of an Ozu vibe from it, to be hmm. honest. The, oh, the, I can the see that, of, especially the camera you know, work. Yeah. 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 Right. And you know, the thing is, too, I can, I can see, uh, I can see where Viv Vendor's got everything from now. I, I absolutely see it, you know. I mean, where he, you know, he, he totally has ripped off everything he's ever done from this film. I mean, yeah, I, I can see that absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you actually, I'm looking at my notes here, and I've written down Kiss versus Robot Werewolf Monkeys with Scooby Doo music. I mean, that, that so there is one, there amazing. is one plus, there is one plus about the film. Then, right? Well, no, this is it. I mean, that sounds amazing, doesn't it? But actually, watching it, it's kind of like, yeah, this this isn't good. I'd like to really? have been in the shoes of the script writer at the time who thought it was a good idea to include dialogue. Uh, didn't Ace, at least in the American version, because we acknowledge that there are two different versions of the film floating around, but in the, uh, the, the NBC version, Ace says to Paul after he's gone and hit two of the monkeys together, says, hey, they really use their heads. Ha ha ha. Work of jeez, and you're knocking that. You know, Ricky Gervais couldn't have come up with better than that. No, well, no, he right. couldn't have, could he? <laughs> Oh, I forgot where you stood on him. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, 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 the most interesting things about the movie, I think, were the, uh, you know, the, the kind of behind-the-scenes factoids and stuff. The fact that they were, I think a couple of them were actually actively hating each other at this point, And Ace was refusing to even show up and redub his lines. So, and apparently, you've probably talked about this already, but apparently his stunt double actually had to double for him in a couple of acting scenes as well because he didn't show up. You I, know, all this kind of IMDb trivia kind of stuff. I think Mike, seemed more... Mike brought up the fact that I think one of the stuntmen, which he thought was for, for Paul, was an African-American Yes, uh, that's it. Is that, was that, no, was it's that for Ace? It's for Ace. Ace. It oh, was for Ace. Ace, apparently. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. All right, so we've probably gone and said as much as we can about uh, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Probably so. Final recommendation or not to the to the listeners out there, don't waste your time. Watch and beware or sit back with a bottle of beer and a big tub of pop. What would you say, Bernie? Well, I guess if you're sick, you know, then you would probably get something from this. Uh, and and as a weird, crazy seventies timepiece that kind of you know it's it touches on this kind of weird celebrity and fame yeah. and you know as a the strange kind of snapshot of 
what it must have been like to be that famous at, at that time, then, you know, I guess it has some merit and it's, it's maybe worth a look. But if you're just a casual guy, um, casual viewer, um, I, I'd say probably avoid it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Mike, given that you've watched it a ton of times, I guess you'd be, uh, you'd be recommending that people check it out. Yeah, though I do have to say it's better to watch it with friends. Right. Probably. Yeah, the, I could see the, that. Like mentioned. Yeah. Right. Just sort of touching on what I was asking about before here, I think I'd really like to, um, I, I think the only way I would want to watch it again is if our local repertory cinema, the Astor, were to have like a midnight screening, you know, with, uh, I, I think we, we have like a, a couple of comedy crews here who take old films, old, really bad films, and do a live in the cinema commentary track while the film's running. I'd love to see it under those circumstances. Right. You know what I think would be a really good film to play as a double with this, now that I think about it, is uh, Dazed and Confused. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, I mean, like, Bernie was just talking about the whole zeitgeist of the time, you know, and, you know, the whole 70s era, and then, you know, you've got the band, and then you've got the kids, you know, from the kids' perspective of them, what they were, and, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know, it just seems to me like it, it would just be kind of an apt double bill. No, I, I could see that, Tim. I think uh, that would work. Yeah. Just All make right. sure you watch Kiss Second, so, you know, you can <laughs> right. Right. To sleep in that one. <laughs> right. All right, gents, I think we've uh, discussed as much as we uh, can about uh, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. So, first of all, I'd like to say thank you so much to you, Mike, for uh, being part of the conversation and um, uh, joining us here on See Here today. Well, thank you so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, uh, thanks, regardless of what we thought about it. Thanks for sort of bringing that to the table. Actually, I mean, I think it was in the end you came up you gave us like a fair number of films to select from saying that you'd be happy to speak about but i think that whatever else i think this was the right choice i think this was a good choice uh, i think bernie was that your when we played rock paper scissors did you win on this I, uh, yeah no i i this i actually chose this one yeah i wanted to do this so at a, at a mike's list yeah right. yeah yeah so thanks mike i'm glad i'm glad you came out mike thank you very much yeah thanks, thanks. Time to uh, quickly discuss the next episode. Well, actually, it's it's the end of 2015. By the time you hear this, it'll probably I'll probably get this up. I imagine a day or two before Christmas. So uh, hopefully, if uh, your your Christmas luncheon with the family and Uncle Abner is driving you nuts and you want to sort of go into the next room, hopefully we're providing some entertainment for you while he's putting the lampshade on his head. We've now done two years of C here, and we're patting each other on the back. They said it couldn't be done, and we've done it. How about that? But what we're going to be doing is uh, in January, which will be uh, the first episode of 2016, we'll, we'll be uh, having another very special guest join us, a return appearance from our good friend, Mr. Frank Padre, co-host of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. And I left the ball in his court as to uh, what film we should discuss. And he just got back to me a couple of hours ago before we started recording. And his choice is a film which at first I thought, I wonder, does this qualify as a music film? But I thought, well, it, you know what? It qualifies as much of a music film as Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park does. So it's, uh, I can't remember the year, but it's starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman. And the film is Ishtar. Nice. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there you go. We're going for uh, two high-quality films in a row, uh, as you would expect on uh, the See Here podcast. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to welcoming back Frank to the program and uh, discussing this film. And I'm I'm sure we're all aware. I, I imagine, Mike, you've seen it. You know, I haven't. And it's hilarious because my wife just DVR'd it for me because she said, 
you always say that you've never seen this movie, so I taped it for you, so now you can watch it. Oh, marvelous. Okay, I want to know your thoughts after after that. I mean, we were all aware of its reputation, which, you know, on, on paper, I would have thought, you know, Warren Beatty, uh, Dustin Hoffman, I thought, okay, this, this could be Paul something. Paul Williams doing the songs. You know, so, come on. So who, who did the songs? Paul Williams. Oh, Paul Williams. Williams. Our beloved Paul Williams, <laughs> Phantom of the Paradise, absolutely. Yes. Wait, he's back. Holy mo- And, and uh, they had Paul Williams on Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast. I don't remember. They oh. would, I'm sure they would have spoken to him. Oh, didn't Gilbert sing one of the songs from the film? Because he's got this, <laughs> he's got this <laughs> colossal memory yeah. for... I mean, the other day on, on um, one of their short episodes that they do every week for your listeners out there who might not have tuned into the to their podcast yet, they do uh, one episode a week where they speak to special guests and one episode a week, uh, a short form thing for 20 minutes where they just talk about a couple of films that they want to recommend to the listeners. And I think it was this week, I, I'm trying to remember what was the film that they discussed, but Problem Child came back into the equation as per usual. And I discovered this little nugget gem where uh, the Beach Boys had gone and written the title song for Problem Child 1 or Problem Child 2 and Gilbert <laughs> went and sang the song. He's got this he's got this memory for, you know, songs that in films he's only ever seen once. I don't know how he does it, but there you go. The Beach Boys and Gilbert Gottfried, a match made in heaven. It's wonderful. So anyway, so yes, there's, uh, January's uh, episode will be with Frank Santapadre and we'll be discussing Ishtar. So uh, fun times. Looking forward to that. So if um, you've enjoyed the show in any form over the last couple of years, please feel free to write us at seeherpodcast at gmail.com uh, and and because it's the end of the year, I just want to give a solid shout out to anyone who came on as a guest, anyone who suggested a movie for us. And actually, we still owe Eric Reanimator a movie for February. He suggested Color Me Impressed, the documentary about the replacements. So we'll be discussing that in February. We owed him that this year. But thanks for your patience, Eric. We'll be uh, talking about that in a couple of months. So we've got the next couple of months of films all planned out. Uh, I think that's it. Anything you guys want to, as a final call? Actually, so we'll start with you, Mike. Any um, Anything uh, uh, exciting? coming up on the projection booth and, and where can people uh, download the show from your, your, the website et al uh, you can get it over at projection-booth.com and uh, yeah uh, right around the time that this comes out uh, we will have our Get Carter episode uh, coming out which should be a good one uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy that sounds like you will I think you guys have good enough taste in uh, movies to already like Get Carter looking forward to it uh, so projection-booth.com and obviously through uh, iTunes and the exactly. usual uh, podcast download sites. Bernie, Tim, any final thoughts before we close out? Um, I'd just like to say thank you, everybody, uh, for listening to and supporting the show over the last <coughs> years. Mm. Um, mm. Really appreciate it. And please continue to listen and uh, please get in touch and tell us what you think. And just thanks. Thank you. Right. Sure. It's amazing sure. that it's been two years. Like, you know, it's just gone by like a fart in the wind. Like, it just seems unreal that, like you said, you know, two years. And I mean, I've all I've had so much fun doing this show with you guys, with my brothers in arms. You know, and I think, uh, like I uh, second what Bernie had to say about thanking the listeners and thanking everyone that's taken the time to download the show and give us and, and has given us some feedback. And uh, we encourage all of you out there to uh, hit us up with some suggestions because, you know, sometimes we're at a loss of what we want to cover for the next month. So we're always open to uh, some ideas mm-hmm. because we'll, we'll, we'll cover all of it. Actually, I mean, really, when you think about it, when, when uh, we first came up with the idea to do this show and you would have thought, oh, yeah, music-related films, it's going to be a fairly narrow band. And yet, what have we done? We've done Gigi Allen. 
We've covered a film about Towns Van Zandt. We've covered Shakespeare in a jazz fashion with All Night Long. Uh, and we've done Kiss Meets a Phantom of the Park. I mean, that is a pretty broad church, really. And I, I think the possibilities for music thematic film is is pretty endless, actually. I think we've just scratched the surface, haven't we? I think there's plenty more out there. So, uh... Holy moly, yeah. Yeah, onwards and upwards. On the way out, uh, I'd like to give one one final shout-out to uh, my good friend here in Melbourne, Reese Lett. Uh, Reese is a uh, Kiss obsessive, and he he's a fantastic musician, and one of his projects, he's in a Kiss tribute band, but they do all the songs in lounge music format. So basically, uh, or actually, he says sort of a three-part harmony, a bit loungy, a little bit Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So um, we're going out. He's very kindly donated to me uh, one of his band, Dressed to Chills, songs, their, their version of Come I On and Love Oh, you're, Well, you will. You will. It's called uh, Come On and Love Me. So we'll uh, lead the show out with that. So uh, thanks very much, Reese, for uh, donating that. And final thanks to you, Mike, and also to anyone who's bothered to listen to the show over the last couple of years. We are immensely grateful. And uh, please spread the word that we exist. So um, with that, I guess uh, just thanks, guys, and uh, we'll see you in January. Cheers. Cheers. Yep. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays and all that. And uh, yeah, see you soon. Cheers. She's a dancer. I'm a bouncer. I'm a Capricorn and she's a cancer. She saw my picture in a music magazine. When she met me, said you get me. She talked to helps and told me that she'd let me. Take your hand, baby, this is what I said I said Baby, baby, don't you hesitate Cause I just can't wait Lady, won't you take me down on my knees You can do what you please Come on and love me
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.